This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hello and welcome to the Publicly Challenged Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Oswald, and I hope you join me on my quest for knowledge to become a better public land hunter, angler, and forager. Stick with this and who knows, maybe we will learn something together. All right, real quick before we get started on the show, I'm just going to talk about Treeline Academy. You've heard me say it. I can't even tell you how many times. Um, Mark Livesey is treelineacademy.net. That's treelineacademy.net. Sign up. Use the promo code PC2020. Save yourself 20 bucks. Can't say it enough. It's awesome. Amazing. Most comprehensive e-scouting course out there. Check it out for yourself. Sign up. Use promo code PC2020. And now let's get to the show. All right. So I'm sitting here and I am talking to... Hank Shaw. So, Hank, can you go ahead and introduce yourself for everybody listening? Well, hello, everybody, and thank you for coming on the podcast, and I hope to not bore you guys to tears. Oh, I, I highly doubt that. You know, uh, looking back, um, it's kind of crazy. I remember stumbling. I, I knew who you were um, at the time, but I stumbled across your podcast when I first got into listening to podcasts way back season one and uh it was some of my favorite episodes i ever listened to so we'll kind of jump into those in well, the show that. because it was just I'll, we'll talk about it more i don't even want to ruin it i want to save it because it's pretty good stuff okay. <laughs> um but uh so can you kind of introduce yourself uh i guess kind of in a nutshell because there's so many aspects and angles of it but can you introduce yourself for everybody listening if they don't know who you are Sure. Um, most people know me. Actually, most people don't necessarily know me. But if you Google, um, if you Google anything that has to do with wild game or or fish or seafood or wild edible plants or mushrooms, 
chances are you're going to come across Hunter Angler Gardener Cook, which is the website that I run. And I have been running that since 2007. And um, for that website, I've been nominated for the James Beard Award twice, and I won it in 2013. So if you're not familiar with James Beard Awards, they are more or less the Oscars of the food world. So it, it was a pretty big deal to win that. And God, it's almost 10 years ago now. And the site has been going strong since then. Uh, it has helped me to write five cookbooks, um, everything from Hunt, Gather, Cook, which is a little bit of foraging and fishing and hunting all in one book, to then much more specific books. Uh, my second book was all ducks and geese. It was called Duck, Duck, Goose. Third was uh, about all things with antlers, you know, venison and elk and pronghorn and moose and all that kind of stuff. And that was called Buck, Buck, Moose. After that, uh, I hit Upland Birds and Small Game with Pheasant, Quail, Cottontail. And my most recent book is Hook, Line, and Supper. And that is, as you might guess, everything that lives in the water. So um, kind of if you can't buy it, that's what I'm interested in. So edible plants, wild mushrooms, fishing game, uh, that kind of stuff. And, and I do quite a bit of reading and research and, and, and I, I end up writing a lot of articles on a, uh, on a substack, which is called to the bone. If you're not familiar with substack, substack is a, um, it's a, it's kind of an old school blog. Like if you remember blogs from the 2000 O's, this yeah. is more like, like that. And it's, it's writing. It's everything that's not recipes because Hunter Angler Gardner Cook is all about recipes. Um, I've got a podcast called Hunt Gather Talk and been on a bunch of TV shows and all that kind of jazz. And I don't know, just trying to make a living. <laughs> Making a living. Uh, probably better than being a political writer, right? I mean, it's that was the better. past life. That was a free a former life. Uh, yeah, former lives, I have two. Uh, one was as a political reporter, which I did that for about 18 years. And then I uh, was also a restaurant cook, kind of a, a line cook and low-level low level chef. Yeah. So can you kind of tell everybody, because I've kind of heard it before once or twice, but like, what, what was the catalyst moment that made you, was it, was it the writing of your book or was there just a, a drive inside to get away from what you were doing and totally gravitate towards uh, going forth with the cooking and, try, and writing the cookbooks and things like that? So... Like I said, I was a political reporter for 18 years, and, and I don't know if anybody out there has noticed, but politics in the United States has gotten a, quite a bit nastier over the last 20 <laughs> years. And, and I, I don't know, maybe you haven't noticed, but uh, but things have just gotten very, very ugly. And, and I was there for the very beginnings of that turn. And I got into the job because when I started covering politics, it was all about people of differing ideas coming together to solve a problem. And so... As a writer, what you write about is compromise and debate. Well, I can just leave that out there because there's very little compromise and almost no debate in modern yeah. politics. So it does not matter what your politics are. You could be to the right, left, or middle. It's inherently boring to write about that if you're if you're a journalist because it's it's just a bunch of people yelling at each other. There's no there's no real compromise, no real debate, and that's just it's just boring. So I've always been interested in wild foods and i've been a gatherer of plants and, a, and an angler since you know since before i could remember and i'd i've been hunting for 20 years and i just thought you know what i should i should just write about this because it's it, it keeps me sane you know you come home and take your suit off you know you got to take a shower because everybody's been lying at you the whole day <laughs> and 
and you know the idea of going out to hunt deer or going out to catch some fish or pick some mushrooms it felt clean and it still feels clean and i do not miss i do not miss my former life at all yeah no that's great that's uh that's definitely a good feeling to be able to do that and get nature therapy as much as possible and and uh the the, the real benefits of it really shine through and i tell my wife all the time you know she asks me and can can kind of see when things are starting to weigh on me a little bit and i'm like i just need to get out i need to go hunt morels or whatever it is in the season that's kind of what's so nice about being more than just a hunter you know being being a nature lover and observer but actively partaking in it taking something from it but uh but not not necessarily taking away from it but taking away something that's a memory something spiritual something uh that grounds you closer to uh to that and part of that is cooking those things those gifts that you do receive and benefit from the outdoors as well and uh you definitely shine in that area so um it's kind of good to talk to you about that because now I'm kind of at the point in foraging and um and, and doing all these things to where I want to give it the respect that it deserves. I want to take it to the next level to where it's truly appreciated, not only by me, but others that I can share it with. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the ultimate level of it is for me, at least is I used to be a bit more like, like Alan, who you talked to just recently um, in chefier and chefier things and pushing things to the boundaries. And there's another guy in, in, in Pascal Baldar who's very good at that. Yes. <laughs> and I, I kind of have pulled back from that quite a bit to, I want to normalize a lot of these foods and, and make them less prancy to, for lack of a term. Now, don't get me wrong. The, the, the chef in me really loves the prancy stuff because it's kind of cool. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, I, I just, I, I, I end up cooking certain wild foods in two or three ways and I'm kind of happy with that. You know, I've, I've ended up, I've cooking, I've, I've cooked morel six ways to Sunday and there's really only a few ways where I like to, to eat them at this point. And, and that's true with a whole lot of other things where it, take a, take example of like spring greens, like lamb's quarters or amaranth or uh, nettles or something like that. It, it's, well, nettles are kind of an exception, but, but you know, the, well, yeah, because I'm just, the dish I'm about to describe doesn't really work that well with nettles. Um, so you, lamb's quarters is a great example. They live all over the place. Um, everybody's got them. I really just like throwing them in a, in a frying pan with some good olive oil and hear them snap and popple. And, you know, as they, as they, the cell walls break and they wilt, you throw some salt on them. Maybe you cook an onion with them a little bit of chili and maybe a splash of, of stock or wine or, or even lemon juice at the end. And it's just, it's super, super simple. And it's just, it's good on a tortilla. It's good on it with rice. It's good as a side dish. It's just, it takes eight seconds to make. It's really good. And I just don't know. I mean, sure. I could do things and I have done things a million ways to Sunday, but I just really like the simple more and more these days. Simple is great. And I feel that way with meat so many times. And, and especially on social media, you see a lot of people and they post what they're doing with their, their wild game, especially venison. Um, you always see people taking it and wrapping it in bacon or putting something on it that doesn't need to be on there. 
and and it drives me absolutely nuts that everything needs to be covered in bacon or they wrap <laughs> goose breast in bacon because they don't like the taste of a goose breast. Well, it doesn't taste like chicken. It will never taste like chicken. It tastes like a goose. And each animal has its own unique flavor profile that you should come to love from that animal. And if you don't, probably don't hunt it because... <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, and t- to me, I am, I, I don't want to say like an elitist or anything like that, but like a purist that sometimes things in its purest form, its simplest form is the best form because it brings that out. I totally agree with that about like nettles and things like that. And maybe it's because I'm just not that fancy anyway, but just giving it enough respect to where it tastes delicious and somebody else wants to eat it is is my end goal. Yeah. I mean, I think you can take a lot of, uh, you can take a lot of cues from, uh, Italian cuisine, Greek cuisine, um, Vietnamese, uh, Japanese. There are a number of cuisines around the world that really put a premium on the quality of everything that goes on the plate. What's more so than, so I love Mexican. I love Mexican food a lot, um, but Mexican and French uh, and Chinese food, none of those are really cuisines that rely heavily on three ingredients that you have to be perfect. Otherwise the dish is not going to be any good. You know, they, they're much more complicated cuisines. Whereas uh, you find Italian or Greek, especially where if let, let, let's just take a great example. So the Italian dish, cacio e pepe, it's, it's a very famous dish. All it is, is pasta, black pepper, cheese, and pasta water. That's it. And if you do it correctly, it all emulsifies and it is amazing. But if you were to do the same dish with crappy pasta, pre-ground black pepper, <laughs> Parmesan cheese in a green can, you're gonna, first of all, it's not going to work. Second of all, you're going to be like, this is a terrible dish. Why would I do this? Because you just haven't really had it done correctly. And, and so that's a case where it's incredibly simple, but it is showing off by making something incredibly simple that shines it's a little bit it's it's i'm not i don't want to denigrate like complicated sauces like curries or or a mole or anything but i mean man if you have a good curry or good mole you can you can put that on a bumper and it'll taste good whereas (laughs) whereas if you've got something that's essentially naked every little bit matters yeah yeah i like that um so one of the things that um i i kind of gravitated towards and we talked i alluded to it a little bit in the beginning of uh your introduction there was your podcast and some of the first episodes and the one that just stood out to me and hank you're gonna you're gonna think is this guy crazy or something but i've listened to it at least three times was the episode just you sitting there on the microphone talking about preparing fish oh yeah because in my household it was prepared two ways you either baked or broiled and that to me counts as one because it's in an oven or two you fried it there was no real other preparation or anything like that and and i can recall the fish always if you were the person cooking the fish it would always be soggy so like the tips that you gave there about putting it on a cookie sheet with a with a cooling rack on that cookie sheet putting it in the oven to keep it dry and crispy and not get soggy like that was an amazing episode. And I know, I think you even introduced it as hopefully you don't mind me rambling for the next half hour 
about how to cook fish, or maybe it was even an hour. I'm not sure. It was a long episode. It wasn't even just frying fish. It was just frying fish. Yes. It wasn't even fish yes. in general. It was just frying. <laughs> <laughs> but the different ways and, and, and to think, because I was always looking for an alternative to like peanut oil or cottonseed oil or all those other oils that, you know, everybody uses. And, and I was kind of looking for a different type or approach to that and clarified butter. I mean, I've never heard of that. Maybe in other cultures or, or cuisines and restaurants and things, which you, you talked about in that episode, like that's something that happens. But I had never even thought of or heard of that. I mean, is that something that's like a common practice or is that something mm-hmm. in, in all cultures or what? Well, so um, to be clear, very, very, very few people deep fry in clarified butter. But But if you use butter, you're going to, fry and clarify butter because you can't really fry in butter because butters real butters smoke points like 260 degrees and you can barely fry on that it's just above the boiling point it's because of the milk solids so any culture that that fries or that uses butter you know scandinavia india and french um, you clarify the butter so that it, it, it immediately jumps the smoke point up to about 350 degrees, which you can, you can fry at 350 degrees. In fact, you should fry at 350 degrees. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, so the, the presence of butter with, you know, with good cooks, um, it's thrown in at the end because those, those milk solids add a ton of flavor and they brown well and they taste great until they're burnt. So burnt butter is no good. And you want brown butter. So typically, you could, you're you either going to saute in clarified butter or shallow fry in clarified butter. Um, and then if you want that butter flavor, that because you're already going to get it with the with the clarified. But if you want that real richness, you throw in a knob or two of butter in the last two or three minutes of cooking. Yeah, and I've done that, and and I've I've followed your recipe, and it actually turned out great, except for. My batter tends to get a little bit soggy, but I try to get away from any type of uh, traditional grains when I was doing it, and I found... Are you talking a batter or breading? Like a breading. Breading. Okay. Yeah. Not batter. Your breading should be fine, and your breading should be fine in clarified butter. Batter's no good. Batter needs like 360, and that's above above the ability of of, uh, even clarified butter. Okay. Yeah. And then I've tried other oils that didn't work as good as you know, oils, if you were deep frying either too, like if you're going to do that and actually use an actual batter, um, it didn't, it, I don't know. It always, for some reason, it seems like it soaks up too much grease still. And I'm thinking it's your oils too, your oils too, too cold, too cold. Yeah. Yeah. So I need to work on my game for that for sure. A little bit, but, and one of the, I things- mean, it isn't one of those things where people just get really, they get super scared. Like, Oh my God, the oil's 350 degrees. Oh my God, it's 360 degrees stuff, but get the fire department. <laughs> like, no, no. That's when you start frying. Yeah. And, and what you do is you is in between batches, you let the oil get back to 350 or 360 before you put anything else in. So this is the other thing. Like people look, Oh yeah, it's 350. And they throw their stuff in and they either throw too much in and they, that drops the oil temperature to 300, like in a heartbeat, which that's no good. Or um, they do the right thing and they fry things in batches and then they, they're done with a batch. And then they throw the next batch in before the oil gets a chance to get back up to temperature. And then, and then that set, those, the first batch is great. Second batch is soggy. Third batch is still soggy because you're still not doing the same thing. And by the time you get a chance to eat it all, the first batch is soggy because it's been sitting around forever. 
Right. Which is a good trick, though, that you mentioned by putting it in the oven like that. Because I'd never thought of that. Normally, what do you do? You unroll a newspaper, set a newspaper yeah. down. Even though that's not even really a thing anymore, hardly. But uh, <laughs> newspapers are kind of a thing of the past. But that's kind of what you do, right? And you set it on the paper, and everybody picks at it. And by the time you get around to it, it's all cold and soggy. So that was probably one of the greatest tips that I'd never even known was to throw it in the oven like that and keep it warm. Happy to help. Yeah. (laughs) So um, I've always wanted to try cooking a whole fish, but the idea of it to me is kind of, I don't know, scary, obscure, uh, something. How how would you like to cook it? Well, I was, one of the things that I saw that was pretty cool that you've done was the Szechuan crispy fried carp. Mm -hmm. And to me, I've always wanted to try that, but never had the the courage to make that dish um and then you even talked about suckers and some other things is a sucker like a common fish that you've used for that dish or is that something it, that... it is it actually um so that that dish is there's i have two asian whole fried fish recipes one for something like you know if you're in the midwest something much closer to like a like a walleye or a or a, a smallmouth bass you know, really small mouth bass is kind of your archetypical shape and size of, of, a, of a typical fried fish. And that's where you want to fry the fish and you care about the fish. Um, so the other method, which is what you're talking about, is when you have an exceptionally bony fish. So like a sucker or a small carp or anything that's got like a maybe a pickerel or a very small pike or something that's got an extra set of bones. So with that fish the end point is just crispy. It's you, you slash the fish perpendicular to the backbone a bunch of times and you fry the crap out of it. (laughs) And, and by doing that, it softens those little bones. And so what you're left with is just crispy, crispy, crispy. And you, you serve it, you pour either, either sizzling chili oil over it or, or some other sauce and and then you eat it right away and it stays crispy and it's amazing so that i mean that dish that dish is on the cover of uh hook line and supper my fish book i, I yes. like it so much it's and it looks amazing and and i just haven't had the courage to do it and i don't know why i haven't you need a it. fish that will fit in a walk um well a you need a walk a, you need a walk um, so <laughs> <laughs> i mean you could do it in a frying pan but it's, you need a lot more oil there that in that um there's no there's no reason not to do it in a frying pan except for you're using more oil uh and you need you just need to be courageous enough to have 350 degree oil raging away for a good you know five to eight minutes per side and you need a fish that's that fits in that pan you don't want it real i mean you can hang over a little bit in a walk but not in a frying pan and so and you also have to be patient enough to not dick around with it and and let it fry for for on each side so that it's really is crispy yeah so when you're doing that it's not uh actual scales on it right you you descale the fish you scale the fish and then uh it's just pretty much the skin left yeah and the the, and the fins and the fins okay because the fins will the fins get so crispy crunchy that you can just sit you can sit there and eat them the tail tastes like a potato chip that's interesting. And I've seen other people do that, especially with, uh, I think it's like the walleye cheeks or something they call them. And they do it with well, that. Well, that's cheeks. It's yeah. that's different. But they that's fry the them face. up like a chip. Yeah. 
I mean, you could, that would be really, that'd be a hell of a lot of, <laughs> but you see it a lot with bluegill tails. Okay. Yeah. So like, I've got a friend that uses suckers and he's trying to get me to dip net them with them. And he says they're amazing. And one of the things he does is pressure cans them, which pretty much eliminates the bones, turns them soft. Sure. And then he uses them in a bunch of different recipes like uh, casseroles and things like that. Um, but I'm kind of curious now I'd like to try and get some suckers and try the, the crispy fried, you know, sucker instead of uh, with some Szechuan type sauce on it. it There's like- another method um, that I use with shad. Uh, with American Shad is, and this will, this works really well with suckers. And it's funny because it's a, it's a case of kind of convergent evolution where, um, and this is, this involves fillets. So in Japan, there's a, there's a, a fish called a pike eel, which like a sucker has lots of little bones in it. It's like extra sets of bones. So what they do is they take the fillet of the fish, which obviously has many bones in it. And they use a very sharp knife to make uh, perpendicular cuts. So the, so they're cutting top to bottom of the fish, not, not lengthwise. Perpendicular cuts over and over and over and over and over again on the meat of the filet, keeping the skin on. The, 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 the scales are off, but the skin is on. The skin is what holds this together. And then what they'll do is, depending on the size of the filet, they'll either cut the filet into big chunks or they'll just say, screw it and fry the whole thing if it's a small fish. And what happens is when you, you, you either tempura fry it um, you typically in Japan, you would tempura fry it and you drop it into the hot oil. And now we're talking like 360 degree oil. It goes, and then the skin contracts and it, and the meat opens up. And so all the slashes you made, it opens up with the batter and it eliminates the bones. It's crispy, crispy, crispy. And it's beautiful. It looks like a, it looks like a peony flower. <laughs> now the people who clearly had no knowledge of this, but figured out the same thing or people in the Ozarks. So in the Ozarks, they do the exact same thing with suckers, except they don't use tempura. They use a cornmeal batter. Hmm. And it works the same way. Really? That's interesting. Mm-hmm. That's something uh, that definitely sounds like it needs to be. Uh, it's super good. Yeah. Yeah. So is there anything else that like you do with those types of fish other than those two, or is that pretty much like a staple way to, to prepare those there you tip bony fish are, are very good smoked because there's a lot of dishes that you can do with flaked smoked fish like uh i think you just i saw something you posted recently about that you made uh like a, a trout dip, dip. Right? yeah you, trout dips are, are a common one i've got a um a recipe for vietnamese smoked fish salad where it's just vietnamese flavors with flaked smoked fish i've done that with shad um you can you can poach it and then flake out the meat away from the bones and then use that for like a you know like a tuna fish salad nice nice that's definitely something that's good so i had another question for you and and i've seen that you've done it and it turns out perfectly um or at least it looks so in the pictures but smoked venison like a roast beef mm-hmm. i've tried smoking venison and i don't hard to keep it lit um so i've tried smoking it on a smoker and uh i've never it's always come out pretty tough and like what what cut are you using so typically i use like a hind quarter roast 
or sometimes even like a front shoulder. Okay. So front shoulder is never going to work um, unless it's unless that's the first step in subsequent cooking. So it's never going to get tender, just not. Um, however, there's a great number of dishes that if you smoke a shoulder first or a neck and then braise it until it's tender, that works really well. But what you're talking about is a, is a hind leg roast. And what you really want are as a single muscle roast. So that, so there, you minimize connective tissue. And if you do that, then it shouldn't be tough at all because you're dealing with a, a clean muscle that you're, you're basically cooking it like a California tri-tip and a, and that a, a tri-tip is California's um, contribution to barbecue in the sense that it's a tri-tip is a particular cut of beef. And the goal with tri-tip is to get it to medium as slow as possible over a very smoking fire. So you're still essentially eating roast beef, but it's been smoked for hours and it has a very, that tri, I mean, Santa Maria tri-tip has a very specific um, spice rub on it, but the point is the same where if that's your goal is to have a nice roast beef or venison in this case, if you have a single cut of meat, you know, not multiple, like the football roast, the, the sirloin, um, that football roast is, that one's a hard one to do this with because there's inherently a bunch of connective tissue in it and it's right. not terrible, but it's not your ideal roast in, in the hind leg. Uh, it's just big and a lot of people use it. So would you like the eye of the round or something from the back? You could or? do eye round, but eye rounds are really kind of tenderloiny on a deer. I would use the other two. I mean, you end up with three big roasts, the eye round and a bunch of stew meat, basically when you take a part of hind leg. Right. And so I, there's the there's a football roast and then the the two whose name is i can't remember the official the official names of those particular roast but uh, um you end up with two other kind of trapezoidal rectangular roasts that are these those are the ones you want to do this with okay yeah because i've always done that and it's just and i've actually used i don't know what they called either but i've used those i've used the football type roast and even the eye of the round on it and played around and smoked it and ended up putting it in the crock pot to soften it. And, uh, I'm thinking maybe, maybe I just didn't do it long enough, you know, like a lower heat longer than well, what, what I did. heat are you talking about? Like, I mean, I, I, I will do that at like 185 to 200. I was thinking and I'll just probably leave, like 240 or something somewhere in there. It's too hot. Yeah. It's too hot. You know, you're not getting enough smoke time and, and you also have to watch that internal temperature like a hawk. So I've got an internal probe thermometer that, will tell me what the internal temperature is. And, and when you have a very large roast like that, you have an enormous amount of carryover heat because carryover heat is, is a function of the, of, well, of two things. One, how hot is being cooked. And this is not a problem when you're doing what we're talking about, because we're working with low heat, but the other factor is how big the roast is. So the bigger the roast, the more carryover heat you're going to have, but the lower the temperature the lower the carry over your heat you're going to have. So in this case, you still have to account for five degrees ish, even though you're cooking it very low, very cool. Whereas if you had cooked that roast at 400, you might have to pull it at 110 or 115 because it's going to have so much carryover heat. You're once you let it rest for 15 or 20 minutes, um, then it will be medium rare. You yeah. follow? Yep. Yeah, that makes sense. That's something I'm going to have to 
play around meat with science. this weekend. Yeah, meat <laughs> science. I love meat science. It's a wonderful thing. And like I said, you know, being able to to do that and respect the animal and do that. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I can't stand taking my animal to somebody else to cut it up. I want to take pride in cleaning the entire animal the way I want it prepared. Whole muscle groups, trimming, taking time to trim off all, all the silver skin, the pieces of tendon, everything. So it's mine and I'm able to use it the way I want to use it and prepare it. Yeah. I mean, butchering is a very, it's, it's an intimate act on a number of levels and not the least of which is it's, it's idiosyncratic to what cuisines you cook. I mean, if you're, if we were in Mexico, we're going to butcher it differently than we're going to do in the United States. And if we're in the East, we're going to butcher it differently than in the West and French do it different. Italians doing different. It's you, you cut meat based on how you're going to cook it. Yeah. Yeah. I always do whole muscle groups. That's my new thing that I've been doing. They're trying to utilize those whole muscle groups in a dish or, or something that I can do with that. And one of the things I've been trying to do, obviously not successful yet to get a perfect roast beef out of it, but that's something I'm working on. The other thing is with this roast beef project is it's just slice it thin. It's, I mean, it's, it's like goose breast. I mean, you could cook goose breast perfectly, but if you cook it, if you slice it wide, like a, like a mallard, it's going to be tough. Um, you know, you're, you know, remember think roast beef is sliced thin. So slice your venison thin when it's, when it, when it looks right. Yeah. That's definitely a good thing too. Some of the things I've done probably are a little bit thicker. I've almost wanted to get a, a meat or a slicer, meat slicer, just to slice it so I can get it super thin. <laughs> um, so kind of curious about a few other things that, always make me wonder and i think i might know the answer to the question but i'm i definitely want to know your take on it but what do you think is like the most underrated game animal out there pursuing wild game in wild places tune in to hunt stand presents saturdays at 8 30 p.m eastern waypoint tv the destination for outdoor entertainment for Join me, Chef Jean-Paul Bourgeois, and the whole crew here at Duck Camp Dinners every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. There's a lot of them. Um, <laughs> but I would think I would think the animal that is the best that the most people say is the worst is duck. Really? Yeah, I mean, because there are so many duck hunters that you know if i had a dollar for every time i i heard someone like i love hunting them but i sure hate eating them or like you can make a duck taste good i'll give you a hundred dollars you know it's like it's like like, dude i literally wrote the book on the subject um and it's like you know everyone's got a venison recipe everybody has something they can do with a pheasant breast everything knows what to do with a wild turkey breast but there are enormous numbers of hunters out there who just don't know what to do with ducks, except like jerky, you know, or like snack sticks. And I mean, if you make snack sticks out of like a pintail or a canvas back somewhere, an angel dies. I mean, that's just, <laughs> yeah, that's just horrible. Yeah, I mean, it's so, so I, I would, I still say, I still maintain that duck is the most abused, really amazing game meat in America. Yeah, I, I'll agree with that. I actually thought you were going to say squirrel. 
but oh no uh, if you hunt squirrel you like squirrel i don't know anybody who hunts squirrels who doesn't like to eat them <laughs> well yeah okay that's true i just meant like underrated as in like not enough Oh, by the american hunt. public yes yes but like not enough people hunt it oh i would i would agree with you i i think i think civilians uh have this notion that squirrels are horrible and disgusting and and they're among the finest tasting game meats in america yeah so I, i think everybody who hunts them knows that most of my squirrel is either braised or in a crock pot though am i missing sure out? am i missing out on something not really because because squirrels can be five and six and seven and eight years old um so if you are in a squirrel rich environment and you and you get kits you know young of the year squirrels those are really good fried um but unless you're going to do the two-step which is to say a fricassee so a fricassee is where you fry a squirrel or something and then you simmer it in a gravy until it's tender that's a thing that if you haven't done a fricassee that's that's worth your while yeah i have not actually can you kind of go into that a little bit more i'm just kind of curious on how that sure yeah it just is what it is (laughs) (laughs) just great straight up simmer it in a gravy like are you making like a thinner gravy or are we talking like a like a white gravy it's a thinner gravy gravy gravy? thickens as it cooks so there's a recipe in pheasant quail cottontail for it actually. Um, but the, it's basically the gist is that you bread or flour or both the thing, you know, squirrels in this case, and then you fry it and then you drain off most of the oil and then you, you remove the fried thing and then you cook some onions and garlic and maybe some other vegetables in it, but usually onions. And then when those are nice, you put, you know, you make a, you know, you've got some stuff in the pan still from the breading and you make that into a, the base of like a roux for a sauce. So it's a, it, it, you, it starts as a pretty thin gravy and then you put the meats back in and then you let it cook down. And so if you've done it right, the squirrel would be tender at the same time. The gravy is the right consistency. Now that's tricky. You have to do it many times to get that right, but you can always adjust a gravy if it's too thick or too thin. Yeah. Yeah. That, that seems like pretty, pretty simple then um so um when when you're how or what point or do you think in order to get it right to where you put it in i mean what are you looking for when when you put the the meat back in to try and get it to finish at the same time oh well i mean you put the meat back in immediately because squirrels routinely take 90 minutes to two hours to get really tender so so i mean for me i'm gonna i'm gonna let it simmer at a decent level. I'm not a royal boil, but let it simmer fairly energetically for about 90 minutes or so. So you, you actually want a good inch of liquid over the squirrels uh, with an open pot and then let it cook down. Okay. That's just what I was going to ask you. So you're not going to cover it at any point then it's going to be an open. You pot. could, I mean, if it's, if it's cooking down too fast, you cover it or cover it partially. I mean, that's just cooking. Okay. Yeah. So um, one of the things are, can you talk about, I don't know, but you, we talked earlier and, um, you said you love cooking Mexican cuisine and I believe that's something that's coming up, right? Yeah. Uh, don't hold your breath. Um, <laughs> because it's a, it's a bit of a departure because, uh, while there will be fish and game and wild food recipes in this book, it is not focused on that. It really is focused on the cuisines of the North of Mexico. And I'm co-writing it with my friend Patricio Wise, who's from the north of Mexico. And it, it's, a, it's a project that's going to require a lot of time 
a lot of patience. Um, my Spanish has to be better. Uh, I mean, I can get around in Spanish pretty well, but I'm not fluent. And that is a process that takes time. And, you know, it's, it has to be right and it can't be rushed. It, it has to be a book where someone from Sonora or Tumalipas or Coahuila or Baja looks at the book and says, yep, you got all that you touch, you hit all the main bases. And then the goal beyond that is for someone from one of those states to see some recipes where like, I'll be damned. He's, he figured that one out or, or I didn't even know that existed. And, and so that it's this, it, it's, it's a pretty daunting project. It's going to be a fairly substantial book. And we are right now, the plan is to print it in both English and Spanish. Um, so that's, it's, it's not going to be this year, <laughs> put it this yeah. way, but, okay. but, but, um, but it's something that's, it means a lot to me. Um, and there's so much intersection in Mexican cuisine with, this is why I love it so much. It, it scratches all the itches where there's a lot of wild food in Mexico. There's a, you know, whether it's mushrooms or wild herbs or fruits or game or fish, um, and there's, there's a lot of really exciting things that they grow in, in gardens too, that they're just like all of the best things in your garden are from Central America, like corn, beans, squash, tomatoes, peppers, all of the cool stuff is from there. <laughs> so, so it's, it's one of these deals where like <laughs> you talk to anthropologists in like, well, you know, the, the, the corn, beans, squash, and chilies and tomatoes, they, 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 they spread across North America very quickly when they were full. Well, duh, right? Because they're awesome, right? Yeah. <laughs> could, you, could you imagine being like, you know, you know, I don't know, um, an Ojibwe, and you had none of those, and then you you find some dude who'd been hanging out in, in Mexico who's who's got seeds for all this, and like, dude, you need to try this, and you'll you'll try it, and you'll be like, my, where have you been all my life, right? Right. So, <laughs> So of course it's going to be, of course it's going to be widely adopted. I mean, it's, it's, they're amazing products and, you know, it's just, it's, it's got all of that and um, it's so diverse and uh, there's 32 States in Mexico and there are legit, legit one, two, three, four, five, six major culinary regions where food is significantly different from the, from each other. It's a bit like Italy in that sense where everyone knows North and South and you could do North and South in Mexico too, but you really can't actually in Mexico. There's it's North, South, and then the, and then the Mayans. So the, you, you've got three mega cuisines in Mexico where, whereas you really don't have that in Italy, you've got lots of differences state to state and region to region. And, and it, it's nothing like the United States. I mean, it's the closest would be to take Minnesota hot dish and compare it to Cajun food. That would be a similar difference. <laughs> That's a pretty big difference. Um, so I'm kind of just like wondering though, um, is there going to be any type of like wild game in, in that recipe book or is it pretty much um, like traditional dishes? Well, some traditional dishes are wild game. Okay. So, um, and because I, the only thing that you're going to see a lot more of that I don't normally cook uh, right now is regular pork and regular chicken. Everything else is pretty much like the 
beef and venison in in pretty much pretty much not every but pretty much every mexican dish beef and venison are interchangeable um and to some extent pheasants and chickens are going to be interchangeable so uh, having done this from the wild side for so many years it is super easy to uh to tell a reader who has been reading me all along you know let's say you had the other five cookbooks you buy this one uh you're not going to be left behind like you're not going to just see supermarket meats uh, and if you're going to see something that's listed as chicken i'm going to tell you how to do it with grouse or, or pheasants or whatever because that's also important to me yeah no that's very nice um one of the things i gotta ask you and i hope you don't get mad um but have you ever thought about or is there something in the works maybe at some point where your first cookbook ever gets re-released with color pictures god i wish uh, <laughs> i'm not gonna get i'm not gonna get mad it's, I'm, so that book is now uh 11 years old and i don't control it uh i'm in the, i'm in i'm in kind of limbo hell with that book so hunt gather cook came out in 2011 and rodale owns it rodale was then sold to random house and it's kind of, it's still selling. It's still in print. So, I mean, it, I get royalty checks twice a year from it and not, not large ones, but people are still buying it to some extent, but you know, it's up to them to decide whether they want a 10th anniversary edition or, or whatever, whatever. Um, normally it's not uncommon to go, if you go 10 years to do a, a you know, 10th anniversary update. Yeah. That was one of but my biggest detractors from I don't the book. have the ability. It really, it really bummed me out oh, when yeah. I opened I mean, it up and I started looking at it and I'm like, oh, oh, because <laughs> I mean, the well, dishes are amazing dishes, but it's not just color. It's like, can you think about yourself 11 years ago? It's pixelated. It looks like you took it with a flip phone, cell phone with like the first generation of camera, maybe, but <laughs> nah, <laughs> not that not bad, but <laughs> it's not pixelated. It's just, you probably have the heart. You probably have the soft cover and the soft cover images look like crap because the paper's terrible and like, they're all done with real cameras. Um, but the, the problem is, I mean, just think about yourself 11 years ago how much more you know about the things that matter to you now than you did 11 years ago. It's crazy. It's like, it's, it's, it's not totally the same thing, but it's not unlike being going from graduate school and count 11 years back. To, what did you know? True. <laughs> you're, you're a seventh grader, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. So I will agree I mean, with it's that. not like I, like, I, it's not like I didn't know my shit in 2011 or 2010 really when I wrote the book, but I know so much more now that I would love an opportunity to revise that book, but it's not up to me. Yeah. Yeah. No, I was, I didn't know that. And now I do, but that was one of the things I, I, man, I'd love to see that book in color. I I really, and I guess you do too. So it works out that way. Um, I got to ask you though, like what, what right now are you focusing on as far as like foraging stuff to try and find with a, you know, spring and, all these different things to make some great dishes. What's kind of, what are you really looking for? Spring's a crazy time because so much happens at once that you can't do it all. And it's, you just kind of have to pick and choose. And it's also a very busy time in the garden. And then fishing is kicking up and turkeys. And, and it's just, it's, you know, you can get kind of burnt in a sense. We're like, Oh my God, it's perfect for this. Oh my God, it's perfect for that. But you know, morels are just starting for us. Um, 
because armorels exist in in the high sierra and so they don't even really start typically until they're four thousand feet and um they're around five thousand right now and they'll continue to climb up the mountain all the way up to ten thousand by july um nettles are done um now there's one spot i can find nettles at altitude but they're pretty much done that's like a early early spring thing um wild onions are done here in the valley but i can i can chase them up the hill um that's a cool thing you can chase things yeah. up in elevation and you can also chase things north face to south face that's that's so, one of the things i'm jealous of hank is like oh yeah people, I mean, people that live near it, like, mountains i have a friend that says the same thing he's like oh yeah you know we start at you know six thousand or five thousand feet for picking morels and we follow them all the way up you know living in mm-hmm. colorado and it's like man ours are done and when they're done they're done and that's it they're you can't keep going yeah <laughs> so what for us uh right now the other thing that's hot right now is elder flowers uh elder flowers are everywhere right now and so i got to get on it because I, there's some elder flower recipes that i want to want to do and revise um wild greens lamb's quarters is out of control right now and it that might be my favorite wild green to eat uh and then it's uh, personally shows up when it gets hot and it hasn't been hot yet so it's here you know but it's still not it's still pretty small um trying to think of other things that are big right now we don't really have any early fruit the earliest stuff for us is our loquats and that's um that's a imported chinese tree that but it's just a landscaping tree all over the region that you can just kind of pillage wild plums will show up by memorial day um they're here but they're just not ready yet um see spring spring porcini mushrooms are just starting like just just starting i found my first one a couple days ago oh man that's wonderful Um, (laughs) and you can chase them all the way up the hill too uh, and then there's a dirty little secret. There's there you, we can get fall porcini in August if you go way at the top of the mountains. Sounds like fun. Like challenging. Yeah, accepted. It, it, yeah. It, can be, it can be it can be fun. Uh, it can also be pretty challenging. Yeah, you know, like they're right at, right below the tree line, so they're like right where the trees end. Nice. Yeah. No, that's great though. I mean that you can follow them like that. I, like I said, I'm so jealous of people that get to follow elevation for doing that. That that's like such an addition a bonus to the season you know when you can just keep following it like that one of the things that oh nopales nopales yeah. is another thing that's a big spring deal what's that so the the prickly pear cactus paddles oh okay not the fruit the fruit comes late but it's the these are the paddles so how do you prepare the paddles and pretty much in like the same you're or you're not steaming and juicing them or doing things like that with the what are you doing with the paddles and like cutting them and making so they're very, very common ingredient in uh, Mexican cuisine. And so you, you cut them off, you, you grab tongs and you cut them off and you cut off all the spines. Uh, I've got a video for that on YouTube if you're interested. I think I've seen it. Um, and so you cut off all the spines and then there's lots of ways to cook them, but you have to prep them. Otherwise, it is a slime fest. And <laughs> I mean, they're great once you deal with the They call it babas. Uh, but once you deal with the slime, um, they're fine. So you can, there's a way to do it with a, when they're raw and then mostly you, you boil it out of them. Um, you can also bake it out of them, but it's, once you do, they're kind of like a cooked green bean, uh, with a little bit of a tart citrusy taste to it. Nice. Nice. That's like one of the things I saw and I find it so crazy is, uh, how you keep, you, you brought up, uh, lamb's quarter quite a bit and that 
during war efforts, there was pamphlets that would go out about common weeds that you could eat as greens. And one of them that was on there was lamb's quarter. And how quickly we've forgotten that you can eat that and people just spray it. And it just, it boggles my mind that people want to eradicate something that you can just so easily pick and, and eat it. And it's so good. And not only that, it there is so agriculture uh, originated in a bunch of places all over the world independently. And there was an Eastern United States agricultural complex in antiquity. And, you know, so all of the native groups that were north of the Rio Grande and east of the Mississippi, those groups had their own set of cultivated plants that they, that they farmed uh, before some dude showed up with corn beans and squash. Um, and, and lamb's quarters was one of those plants. Really? I didn't know that. But that's uh, kind of like, I was just listening to another podcast and they were talking a little bit about Cahokia, the mounds here in mm-hmm. Illinois, it's, down in Southern it, those Illinois. Those guys. Yeah, okay. Yep, those guys. <laughs> and they were, they were actually talking about grass too, uh, different grasses that they hadn't utilized. And, and uh, Yeah, there's a little barley. Um, may it's grass? It's called little barley and then the may grass is yeah. the other one, yeah. Yeah, that's so fascinating to to learn about all that kind of stuff. Well, their 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 champion plant besides lamb's quarters is uh as uh Jerusalem artichoke. That's from that that whole group. Yeah, what a what an amazing to think that, you know, it it predates what they thought was actual farming, you know, and they they tended tended all these different plants and and utilized them so well. Hank, it's been uh it's been great and uh I, I appreciate you coming on and talking about all these wonderful things and educating me on hopefully how to make a perfect venison roast beef and uh (laughs) and i'll let you know how it turns out uh before we go though can you tell everybody once again where they can find you all your amazing stuff and uh and and look for you so on social media i'm most active on instagram where i am at hunt gather cook uh i do run a facebook group called uh, hunt gather cook as well so you can find me there uh, I run a podcast called Hunt, Gather, Talk, and that is available on, well, wherever you find your podcasts. My website is Hunter, Angler, Gardener, Cook, and you can find that at huntgathercook.com. And finally, I do, if you're interested in kind of the big thoughts and kind of articles and hunting ethics and, and stuff that's not just recipes, uh, you will find me over at To The Bone, which is a Substack newsletter. All right. I appreciate it. And once again, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. And once again, thank you so much for listening to the Publicly Challenged podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please subscribe on whatever platform it is you're listening to. Also, if you could leave a review, that would help us out. And you can check us out on Instagram, or at publiclychallenge.com. And once again, thank you so much for listening to the show. I'm Will Cooper, host of HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast. If you haven't already, download the free Waypoint TV app to listen to our podcast and watch the original films from HuntStand Presents anywhere, anytime, and on any device. Oh my god! Oh my god. Oh my god. Oh my god.
Every once in a while, it's fun to go like just full-blown redneck on these fish. This is like high-tech cane pole fishing right here. From the white sandy beaches to the crystal blue waters, enjoy the best fishing Panama City Beach has to offer during Chase in the Sun, Sundays at 9.30 a.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.